All right. So we are taking a look at the Nicene Creed today. And the reason it's important that we record is we are starting this week. We're going to start posting uh, some of the sermons uh, from the past that we have recorded. But particularly moving forward, we're going to try to post all our sermons uh, as podcasts. Uh, not because I think there are thousands of people out there that really have to hear what we're saying here. Uh, I think that's true because we're preaching the word. We're preaching the gospel. But it, it's a, a way for when families have to be out, they can, uh, they can listen to the sermons that they miss. But also, we are starting, uh, so actually starting today, uh, preaching. Uh, we typically preach through uh, expositionally through Scripture. So we have spent the last... Uh, year and a couple months. Uh, Hope's saying she feels like two years. She's, that's, that's what she said, felt like two years. Uh, preaching through Ephesians. So, so we've preached through Ephesians, but we're going to take a break from expositional preaching, and we're going to go through some of the formational documents and formational um, uh, creeds, the um, philosophies, the tulip, um, the, the five solas. Um, we're going to preach through some of these things, the confessions. Um, so we're going to preach through a few of these things to really kind of get an understanding of uh, these, what these documents mean to this church. And, and these, because these are the documents that are in the formation of this church. Um, and the reason we we're going to record them, uh, not just for the people here, but also a year from now, someone may come and say, hey, what does your church believe, right? What's the, and we'll be able to point them to these recordings and say, hey, actually, we preached for a long time on this. So you can go and, you know, why does your church use the Nicene Creed? Well, there's a sermon for that, right? We can explain that. So, so that's, that's kind of an idea of what we're doing. So we're talking about the Nicene Creed today. And um, it's just the way the schedule worked out. Uh, the Nicene Creed happened after the Apostles' Creed, but I think AJ is preaching on the Apostles' Creed. So, um, so you'll have to kind of go back in time a little bit when, we, when, when he talks about the Apostles' Creed. But we're talking about the Nicene Creed today. And um, we just heard it. We just read it together there. Uh, and uh, first I want to talk about kind of, uh, I've talked a little bit about why we're preaching through it. Um, but one of the big things is, you know, we use these creeds as a form of uh, explanation about why we, what, why, what we believe. We also use them as a teaching tool. So, um, and, and we use them in our worship as a form of worship. We recite those together. So I want to talk a little bit about the reasons we include the Nicene Creed in our kind of formational documents and the bylaws and why we use it in, in our worship service. So, uh, first of all, we use it because of uh, antiquity. It's really old. It's really old. And just like uh, Colby said, oh, wow, this, this song was written in the 1500s, right? That's, that's really old. Yeah, that's really old. But it, it doesn't have anything on the creed, on, on these creeds. So the Nicene Creed was written around... 325, that's 325 A.D. And, and that's just when it was kind of formally adopted. We have a really good reason to believe that things similar to it had been 
said prior to, and it just was formally adopted then. Uh, it was adopted in, like I said, 325. It was modified in 381. And again in 902. And it's been, uh, it's been changed subtly here and there. And then some, uh, some people use it. So this is one of the interesting things about the creeds is you have the creeds and they started very early in the life of the church. Right? We're talking 320, 325, very early. So because they started so early, many people can use those creeds. Many churches still use those creeds. So the Nicene Creed with a few, a few word changes here and there, you could hear this morning at a Protestant church, right, like us. You could hear in a Catholic church. You could hear in... Coptic church, you could hear in an East Orthodox church. There's not a lot of things that you could hear in all of those churches and, and say, oh, I, I know that. That's the Nicene Creed. We said that at my church. So this is one of those things that separates Christians, right? The, the creeds, the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. We're talking about the Nicene Creed today. Separates Christians from the rest of the world, right? A Muslim would not, could not say the Nicene Creed and, and, and mean it, right, and affirm it. So neither could a Hindu or uh, a Sikh, you know, they, they couldn't affirm those. So this is a thing that gives us some, some connection with Christianity and other Christians. Um, and, and we do that, and we look at it, and the reason it has that power is because it's just really old, right? It's been around churches for a long time. So, so, uh, so that's one reason we study, um, we, we use the creed and the value that it has. Another one is its learnability. So the creeds were a way to learn theology before people knew how to read and write. So you could sit down with people who didn't know how to read and write, which, by the way, just to, to, to make, because sometimes we think of that as being, oh, that's forever ago, right? That was hundreds and hundreds of years ago when we would have people who couldn't read and write in our worship services. No, there are people today right in this room that don't know how to read and write. I would assume most of them are very little. But they're still here. They're still learning from our from our sermons and from our worship, right? This is one of the reasons we recite things during our service is to minister to the people who may be small and not able to read. So, uh, and then you have people like me who are big and just can't read very well. So you also have the people like me and it helps. So this reciting, this was a way to educate, uh, to, to help teach theology and, and what people believe to an uneducated populace. Uh, it often served as a catechism. You know, it, it served that role of explaining the basics of theology to people. Uh, and you know, now it's, we, still, we still use it. It's still good for kids and adults. We use it in our, our worship on a regular basis. So another reason we use it is for its clarity. It's clarity. So doctrinal non-negotiables, right? This is kind of the, the idea behind the creeds. They, they become, they're, they're very clear, very broad. Remember, 
Catholics can use it. Protestants use it. The Orthodox. So it's very broad, but it does have clarity. Uh, it presents the doctrinal non-negotiables, the primary issues and secondary issues. It helps us separate that stuff in our mind. Uh, it also provides clarity to outsiders about what we believe, right? So you can take this creed and say, this is what we believe. And people who don't believe that, so non-Christians can look at that and go, oh, okay, you're one of those Christians. Gotcha. Uh, in, in many churches, the Nicene Creed is what you have to affirm to be baptized. So it's kind of the, the baseline you may not have your, you may not agree on your eschatology or your Christology or all these other things, but if you can affirm this, you're good. You're you're Christian. We can baptize you. Um, all right. So um, so let's look at another. Uh, so another reason about the clarity is it helps us defend against false prophets. So let's look at Matthew seven. Verse 15, Matthew 7, verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. So we are told that, hey, there are people who are trying to disrupt God's church. And we've got to defend against that. So leaders of the church... That's, what, that's why the creeds exist, is there began to be some controversy and miscommunication and misunderstanding about what the Bible said and what God's Word said. And, and that's what these creeds, that these councils got together and said, we've got to clarify. We need to, we need to, there's a lot of different things going on. We need to help clarify this is what God said, Okay. Matthew 24, 24 also speaks of false prophets. It says, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. So this is a reminder that not only is that a problem of the past, so 2,000 years ago almost, you know, they got together and they formed this creed and it, it addressed the problem that they, they identified. But that's not only a problem for the past, that's also a problem that we have to be prepared for. So we help, to, so this creed helps protect the church. All right, so I've talked a lot of good things about the creed, reasons to use it, right? Now let's talk about some risks. Let's talk about some risks of creeds, creeds and confessions. They are not the inerrant and sufficient word of God. Okay, so let's be really clear. We, we use the creeds. We recite them. They are good tools to help us understand what God's word says. But they are not the inerrant and sufficient word of God. So some of you may think, okay, then, if God's word is inerrant and sufficient, why do we need a creed? Makes sense, right? If, if God's word is sufficient, why do we need a creed? Well, we, we use creeds to better study and understand God's word. So just like we use sermons, you could use the same logic, right? 
if God's word is sufficient, why do we have sermons? Why do we get together and, and teach and preach? And I would answer, because the Bible says so. And that's a process that we learn scripture, right? A process that we understand scripture better. Same thing with the creeds. <clears throat> uh, I've pointed this out before, I think last Sunday, but there are people who say, there are denominations actually that kind of have, a, a, they say no creed but the Bible, right? Which sounds good. I, that's actually, that's something I think I could get behind the idea of it, right? The Bible is the inerrant and, and sufficient word of God. But the problem is even that is a creed because you're saying, I believe this. This is what we believe. We believe there should be no creeds but the Bible. Oh, shoot, that's a creed. Never mind, right? So, so, we've got, so we've got to be aware. Okay, there also, here's a, a, another risk for creeds, right, is to rely on the creed instead of the underlying scripture that the creed comes from. And, and it's good to memorize creeds. It's good to use them in your worship, but they should always, you can't stop there, Right? It's a good place to go, but it's a road to a, it's a means to an end, right? It's a road to a house. It's not the house itself. So if you find yourself focusing on the creed and saying, well, the creed says this and the creed says that and the creed says this, you should, you should pause and look to how do I use the creed to point me to scripture, right? How do I use the creed to get me to understand scripture better? So... One way that I like to think about creeds is, and this again points to some of the risks involved, is creeds are formed by applying logic to biblical passages and biblical principles in order to form a more coherent understanding. So it's like a puzzle. You take a couple pieces of scripture and, and biblical principles and you see how you can marry those pieces together. How does it all fit together? <clears throat> A problem with this is it's good because it helps us organize, helps us put things together and understand. But a drawback is that we are applying limited human logic to the work of an infinite God. So sometimes the pieces don't really appear to fit together well. And us being people, right? We want the pieces to fit together. We want to make them fit together. So we will sometimes, we will disregard a piece. This piece doesn't really fit in well, so I'm just going to leave it in the box. Sometimes we'll take a piece and we'll trim off a little, oh, you know, this looks like it would fit really good. If we just trim this little knob off, it would fit really well right here. Other times we kind of take the piece and we put it down and we kind of hammer it in and I'm going to make that one fit right there. Right, And all of these are problems because we are limited, our little minds, even though God created us an amazing way, we cannot understand an infinite God. So we have to look at scripture and say, this is true. And I don't understand how all the pieces fit together sometimes, but I know it's true. And just because of my inability to understand it and make it go together the way I want it to doesn't make it not true. It just makes, it just points out my limitations as a person. Okay. 
So that's really important that if the creed becomes a thing that you're using to hammer the pieces in and cut them off and make them fit, you're using the creed wrong. Okay? Okay, so... So... um, In in the ideas of that, of kind of like how we can misuse the creed, we've got to really be humble anytime we're talking about Scripture, anytime we're talking about... um, Really, the goal is to be humble in our lives. And, and I would point you to James 4. And actually, I think I left off the chapter, so I'm not sure what chapter. But in a chapter in James, starting with verse 4, it says, You adulterous people, do not... Uh, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you not suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously, jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So I wanted to give you a little bit of context there, but really I want you to hone in on that, that, there, that where it says in verse 6, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. So uh, it is possible whenever we enter in and whenever we enter into a conversation or even enter into a study of Scripture, we should enter into that in a humble way. God, help me. God, teach me. Help me understand. Instead of, oh, well, let me figure this out. I'm going to read this. I'm going to figure this out. So... I give these as warnings because, you know, God opposes the proud. And often, as we talk about creeds and as we talk about the confessions and other uh, pieces of doctrine, it's easy to think we have this all figured out and we are 100%, got it all figured out, it's perfect, right? Well, there are theological errors. I have theological errors. There are, there are errors in my doctrine. Now, what are those errors, you may ask? If I knew what they were, they wouldn't be errors because I'd fix them. Okay? So, but we have to enter into this knowing that I could be wrong. As a matter of fact, if my track record holds up, I'm probably wrong. So this should lead us to be very humble in the way that we approach Scripture and approach theology. And we should be open to learning. So we shouldn't start with a preset, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm, I want to support this position. Now, I'll give you an example. I grew up, which I didn't know these words then, um, I just thought that, that all Christians were dispensationalists. And that's a big fancy word. Who in here has heard the word dispensationalist? A handful of people. Okay. 
So I grew up, it's, it's basically this, this way of thinking about the Bible and thinking about God, the way he interacts with his people in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And I grew up thinking that that's just how Christians thought, right? So I would go to Scripture with that in my mind and say, how do I prove what I already have been taught and think is right? But then I got to college and was introduced to all these other avenues of theology and realized, oh, wow, this stuff actually fits Scripture more than I thought it did. And then, you know, it led to me changing the way that I understand theology, right? So, all right, so, uh, so we've, we've talked about some of the risks, why we do it. We've talked about some of the risks and a good way to come about it. So now let's approach and talk about this creed in kind of more specific. So this creed basically tells us who is God, who are we, and what did God do for us? And the creed was directly written because in that early church, as I talked about, there's a lots of different theologies going on, a lot of different doctrine. And there was a really popular, started to become popular, uh, thought, and it's called Arianism. And this is the idea that Jesus is not fully God. And there's way more to it. I'm going to simplify it. Jesus is not fully God. And this guy uh, gets there because he is using human logic. And he's saying, well, if God begot Jesus, then, and if there's only one God, then I guess God created everything and this was the first, Jesus was his first creation. And there's some scripture that, can, that you can read and go, okay, like I, I can kind of see that, right? But there's also a ton of other scripture that says, oh no, and this was talking about those puzzle pieces not going in together exactly the way you want to. There's other scripture, particularly John 1, right? The first chapter of John says, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. And the word here, the, the, the word word in, in, John, in the first John is talking about Jesus. So here we have this very clear passage that is saying, hey, God and Jesus, same thing, God. And so, so that's what this group of, of religious leaders got together to try to figure out is, is this teaching was coming up that was starting to distract people and mislead people. And they said, okay, we've got to get our hands on this. Let's all get together and let's study this and read the scripture and let's figure this out. So they got together and they read Paul's letters and they read the different gospels and they read this stuff and they said, okay. And they said, this is clear that God is one, but that God also, Jesus is God. And there's God the Father and God the Son. Like, that doesn't make sense. Yeah, the Trinity doesn't make sense. It just is, right? So they said, okay, well, we believe the Bible. We, we believe that these passages, we believe what 
Jesus spoke. We believe we have a good account of that. We believe all these things. We believe the Old Testament. And actually, you see this in the Old Testament. So all of a sudden, they say, okay, this is what it is. We, we barely understand the Trinity, but it's a thing. And, 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 and we're, we're going to have faith in that, and we're going to put that in our creed. So, so that was the, that's why, uh, if you look at the, the Nicene Creed, you see this. Um, they really go in heavy to convince you and to show you and explain to you that Jesus and God are the same. And it's in that, the second paragraph that says, And in one Lord Christ Jesus, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds. And then they really start, they want to make it clear. God of God, light of light, very God of very God. Begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made. Right? So they really wanted to, to make it clear. We believe that God, God the Father and God the Son are the same God. We don't really understand, but that's true. We believe it. Okay? And then, uh, and originally, they did not, the original Nicene Creed didn't include the Holy Spirit with as much detail. But later in... 381, I think, the, the part about the Holy Spirit was added. And I, and I believe, all right, or expounded upon, and I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Lord and giver of life, who pr- proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshiped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. So we really see this, you know, I told you that it would, we would look at who, the creed speaks to who God is, and we see this, this Trinity understanding of God. Now, uh, now let's look at some additional scripture, because there's uh, some really great scripture that shows us this Trinity, this three gods in one. So Matthew 28, verse 18 and Jesus came to them and, and said to them, All authority is given in heaven and on earth. So all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. So Jesus is basically saying, Hey, I have all authority. Have all authority. And then he is about to tell his disciples what to do. This is the Great Commission. So he says to the disciples, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So here we see Jesus presenting the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as equals and that to go and to baptize in the name of all three. Earlier in Jesus' life, at his baptism we also see the presence of all three persons of God. So Matthew 3, verse 16. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately when he, uh, he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, 
This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So again, at Jesus's baptism, we see the presence of all three persons. The son getting baptized, Jesus. The spirit descending on Jesus. And the father speaking about his son and how well, how pleased he was in his son. So, so the creed speaks to this uh, who God is, right? This Trinity, all three persons of of the of the one God, equal, <clears throat> all God but separate. How does that work? I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I would be scared if someone tries to explain it to you with too much uh, detail. Okay. So, so looking at other pieces. <clears throat> We're talking about uh, the the creed. So that's the creed's talking about who God is. Now the creed's going to talk about who we are. So one of the things it talks about is um, there, there's some uh, words, and it was interesting. I don't know if this was uh, intentional or just people stumbling sometime, but uh, people struggle with the the part that says, and I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. People stumble with that. I know I stumbled with that when I first introduced the Nicene Creed. They're like, uh, I'm not Catholic. Like, this is not a Catholic church. What are we doing? What's going on? Well, the, the answer is pretty simple, actually, which is the word Catholic means universal. It just means the everything, like all the Christians. So there is a church, right? It's all the Christians. We, we are a church, right? We're a local church, but we don't get to say, oh, we are the real church and no other Christians are real Christians. That's what this is saying is, hey, we believe that there's this church and it includes anyone that's a believer. And the Catholic church kind of took the name Catholic church and the, the Catholic church will say, for example, oh, the Nicene Creed is really a Catholic document. Because it was made by the Catholic Church. Well, there wasn't a Catholic Church the way we think about it in 300. Right? So when, when we read this word, some churches even change that word to universal. Um, and, and I don't think that's necessarily wrong or right. I don't, it's just may, may help people understand it. Um, I think it's better to try to explain what the word actually means because it helps you in other places and other creeds and even helps you understand kind of why the Catholic Church is the Catholic Church. So, so that's the first part of that, right? So as a Protestant, you can feel good saying, you know, re- reciting this piece that said, I believe in one holy Catholic Church, right? Because it just means the universal church. We're not talking about the Pope being in charge, okay? And then the next part of that, the apostolic church. So, so this was another interesting thing that I think some people kind of either read and don't really know or... Just kind of maybe they don't read that part and kind of let it, just kind of mumble it as they go through, and and what this is talking about is the idea that <clears throat> that there it, it, it we're not talking about that we proclaim that there are apostles today and all that that's not what we're talking about. What the creed's talking about is that God instructed the apostles to make disciples. Remember that scripture we just talked about, the, the Great Commission. And that through those disciples, and there's a process, and that, that the apostles went and planted churches and ordained elders, and then those churches went and planted churches, and those elders ordained elders, 
And those churches went and planted churches and ordained elders. And at some point, it gets to us. We're here. So that's the idea is that, that this church that we're in now, so the church is not only all the, all the, the Catholic, right, all the universal church, and not just all the Christians, it's also the fact that we are the spiritual descendants of other Christians prior to us. And that we can look back, if we, if, we, if we had enough information, we could draw lines all the way back to the apostles. And, and that's why we're an, an apostolic church, right? We're kind of the leftovers of those churches. So, all right. So another reason, and, and by the way, I'm just kind of scraping the surface here, right? So this is not supposed to be an exhaustive uh, discussion about the, uh, what we can learn through the creeds. Uh, but I want to move on. Another reason we study the creeds is for unity. And we see this in um, the exp- explanation of the, we acknowledge, the next line, we acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins. So that one baptism, whenever you hear something like that, particularly in a creed, a lot of times you can ask yourself, hey, where is that in Scripture? That's a great question to ask. Where is that in Scripture? So when you think one baptism, hopefully some of you realize or, or thought, oh, that's in Ephesians. Ephesians 4, starting at verse 1, reading through verse 6. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility, and there's humility again, by the way, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, so that's the Catholic Church, the universal church, okay? There's one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord. One faith, one baptism. One Lord, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. All right, so, so we see this, that as, as we, we looked at who God was, and then we looked at who we are, and we see that, right, the unity of the church. And then we see... The last part that the, the, the creed teaches us, I told you the creed, the creed taught us about, is what Jesus did for us, what God did for us. And that, quite simply, is the gospel. It's the good news that when you... The, the idea is we realize that God is God, creator of everything, perfect, wonderful, powerful, loving, but also just. And that God can't let sin go unpunished. So what happens when, and then we know who we are, which we're the church, right? But we're also sinners because every church is full of sinners. I I had a conversation with a man one time and he said, you know, that church, it's just full of sinners. Yes. He said, you're on your way to having really good theology. He meant it as an insult, but it was, he was, it was an actual observation. Yes, 
Not only was that church full of sinners, this church is full of sinners. And every church that's meeting this morning is full of sinners. Because that's all we are. We're sinners. So if we have a just God and a loving God and we have a church full of sinners, how does that work? What happens, right? Because if God's a just God, He's got to punish sin. And the answer is that God did punish our sin. He just didn't punish us for our sin. And this is, this is a hard thing. It's easy to say. It's even easy to kind of say, yeah, I believe that. It's a really hard thing to think about and to dwell on and understand. That God punished Jesus God the Father punished God the Son because of us. And it wasn't an unwilling punishment. The Bible tells us really clearly that Jesus, on with a word, could have had a legion of angels descend down and free him. I've mentioned this before to you guys, but when I think about this, I just see this army of angels just standing there in heaven, just enraged. How dare they do that to Jesus? How dare they? We will come down there and we will, we'll, we will fix this. We'll take him off that cross. We'll worship him the way he is worthy of being worshiped. And we will punish those that are doing this to them. And they're waiting on a word from Christ. And then they hear Jesus say, forgive them, they know not what they do. And instead of being released to come down and lay waste to the world, Grace is poured out. Because the only sacrifice that, is, that was big enough to cover all our sins was the death of an innocent man who was also a God. Jesus was fully man and fully God. And he died and paid the penalty for our sin. And that changed everything. It changed everything. Because now we're sinners and we can look at God and say, God, you're just. You're going to punish our sin. You already did. And, and then He changes us by sending His Holy Spirit at that third part of the, of the Trinity to dwell in us and create a new creation in us because now our sins are forgiven. And everything changed. And that's the gospel. And I want to read Ephesians 2, 20, uh, verse 8 and verse 9. This is one of my... I've got a kind of handful of scripture that I always find myself back at. And this is one of those. For by grace... You have been saved through faith. And this is not 
your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. God didn't just save me from my sin. That would have been way more than I deserved. I deserved death and eternal punishment. But God saved me from my sin. He didn't only do that. He also imparts upon us Jesus' righteousness. So that one day I will get to stand before God, not as a rebel or a thief or a sinner, but as a child. And he'll treat me as his own heir. But even that, he did even more than that. Because he even tells me, because he knew me. He knew that I would think well, there's something about Cody that's special. I'm a little smarter than most people, a little better. That's why God, that's why God died for me. Because I'm, I'm, a, I'm not a bad guy. But God even knew that my pride was going to be too much. And he explains to me, no, 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 no. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is not the, the, uh, it is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. It's not because I'm faithful that I'm saved. I am faithful because I am saved. It's not, I don't do good works because, and then I'm saved because I do the good works. I do the good works because I'm saved and the Holy Spirit lives in me. The, the fruit of the Spirit is what people often see and, oh, that's a, now that, that lady's a good Christian wife, right? Or that, that man's a good godly man. And, and, and it's good to encourage each other, right? But it's also good to acknowledge, particularly when it's us, to acknowledge that, yeah, the good I do is not because of me. I'm not a good person. I'm not a faithful person. The Holy Spirit in me brings this fruit out. And because the Holy Spirit's changed me. Because the Son of Christ, the Son of God, my Christ, died for me. You see what I'm saying? This this path. So it's it's not because I'm faithful that I'm saved. I'm saved, and then that makes me think that makes me faithful. So, so as we kind of think about this, uh, we're gonna we take the Lord's Supper uh, every Sunday. And Colby, as you think you're going to do that today, thank you for that. But as we transition into the Lord's Supper, I want you, I want you to think about this. We've talked about kind of the nature of God and the nature of man and then what God's done for us, right? Quite honestly, this sermon could have not been about the creed at all. But we use that creed to help us study the word. Hopefully you've seen how that creed can do that through this sermon. But I I want you to think about, because this creed, the word credo, it literally means I believe. That's, that's, that's why it starts with I believe, right? It's, it's a creed. You're saying I believe. 
So if you believe in God, if you have put your faith in him, we welcome you to take communion with us. Now, some of you may never have believed in God before. And some of you may have believed, have misunderstood or or even believed something that's not true about God. Well, I pray that God opens your eyes. And if he opened your eyes today, that's wonderful. This is a wonderful opportunity to confess to God. God, this is something I struggle with. I struggle with believing you or, underst- or, or believing this is true about you, believing this is true about your nature, your character. So I invite you to bow your heads and to pray on what it, what it means to understand that God is who the Bible says he is, that we are who the Bible says we are, and that Jesus did what the Bible says he did for us. First Corinthians eleven twenty three through 26 tells us, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, <clears throat> that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. 
Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. God, we thank you for the bread. We thank you for the body of Christ broken for us. We will never understand the sacrifice that it took. We'll never understand the submission that Christ showed on the cross. We'll never understand the value you put on us by paying such an immense cost. Thank you, Lord, for the bread that represents Christ's body broken. Amen. God, we thank you for the cup. We thank you for the blood of Christ that it represents. God, the blood that covers our sin. We will never understand the power of that blood, Lord. We are simply thankful for it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. God, we thank you for this day to worship you. We thank you for this time of prayer. We thank you for this time of worship through song and giving, through reading your scripture and studying. And God, we thank you for the meal that we are going to share. We ask that you bless the food to the nourishment of our bodies, Lord, and the time to the nourishment of our souls. Thank you, God, for providing for us, for putting us in a a safe home, in a safe state, in a safe country. Help us, Lord, as we go into this world. Help us to bring hope and joy to a fallen world. Thank you, God. Help us encourage one another and bring you glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, if you're pleased, stand. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son.